I took uh, like programming in high school and I just I I was like this stuff is for nerds like <laughs> you know like I was I was rejected by the anime club like because I wasn't nerdy enough so um you know I I really didn't think that I'd have any use for for coding whatsoever but I'm I'm very sad that I I missed out you know and that I lost those, those skills because I did I did have a pretty dope uh, MySpace page so <laughs> yeah you had those weird gift things so stuff floated and it flashed exactly. and glitter there was glitter and stuff like that yeah man. although i mean as as a nerd it can be fun to make other nerds feel unwanted or mm-hmm. not good enough i did that to to one of our friends uh ken cooper recently oh no way where ken cooper was like oh because he he expressed some 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 minute fandom over star wars Mm -hmm. and then i was like you're a star wars fan and he's like yeah and i'm like i don't see you at the meetings of star wars fans (laughs) nice (laughs) if you were a star wars fan i would see you at some of those meetings yeah (laughs) and he's like there's meetings and i'm like yeah I mean, there's the Force Federation, there's the Jedi Council, and then there's the Reading Club. <laughs> and so I was like, you got to show your nerd cred yeah. if you want in on if you want in on that circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to earn that that sweet, sweet uh, <laughs> tattoo by uh, Key, right? Kisa Suiko. Kisa yeah, man, that is so awesome. Do you know, are those t-shirts going up for sale? or? He's just doing, um, like, sort of orders for us. Mm, so okay. if you... Yeah, you could you could order more. Oh shoot, I ordered five more. Oh awesome! Just for for my family, and so you could always get more. Mm. But um, for those of you who so in the future, um, Manny and I and anyone else who's interested. So if you are interested, please message us. We will totally be doing like a video game podcast, talking about video games and and different sort of um, different. Uh, radical ideals ideas or decolonial ideas or even indigenizing video games those sorts of things um because both manny and i are frequent players of video games Mm -hmm. and so that's why it was really funny once because like a younger chamorro sort of cultural type um once once asked me wait so so dr mike what do you what do you do like so like in your spare time do you like go into the jungle and and do you like pray to the ancestors and i was like i mean i i do that sometimes but mainly i just play video games in my spare time and he was like wait really and i'm like yeah i mean i don't think that in order to be some hardcore tomorrow you have to exhibit ancient personality Mm -hmm. or behavioral traits or rituals that that does that's not the type of tomorrow mold that i would want Instead, I want the Chamorro that can evolve and adapt. Yeah. And that can, can embrace sort of the natural, the elemental, and stuff like that. But also the type of Chamorro that can basically say, you know what, for today's, for this week's D&D game, we're going to bring it back to Micronesia. Mm-hmm. Instead of going from like the village of 
Migeldorf and Njertwingen, and we're gonna we're gonna pretend we're Scandinavian. We're gonna go island hopping in Micronesia, nice. and we're gonna go from we're gonna do quest to quest, but in different islands, and we're gonna fight some regional monsters and some encounter some regional spirits. Because to me, that's that's like the excitement of culture. Is it's it's not that it's it's not that it's just this particular one thing, but it is. It does have that ability to to engulf, envelop, involve mm. more. You know, one of the things that I do is um. Oh, I'll switch this back to me. Yeah. So one of the things I do is um, I imagine people. Uh, this this might sound really weird, but I imagine people. Um, with uh, like uh, um, like ancient um, uh, like jewelry and stuff, or how how we would all look, you know, I'm not gonna say naked, but I mean like you know in in typical uh, ancient wear, I guess that's what I would say. But yeah, so and I imagine like you know, I think it really personalizes history in that way and how we conceptualize our ancestors to know that um, you know they look a lot like you and me. Mm. probably you know just with different attire and uh you know different hairstyles and stuff it's mm-hmm. it's really mm-hmm. fascinating to me so that's yeah now you guys know you know what goes on inside my head if i if i'm like staring at you blankly um i'm he's, i'm imagining you like running through the jungle or something with he's he's creating jewelry for you with his mind that's right that's and then He's placing it over your body and he's shaving your head and putting it in a kipua <laughs> hairstyle and He's embroidering your loincloth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, so, no, we, we were talking about uh, algorithms and um, more specifically how um, how our social media bubbles uh, tend to close mm. in around us. And that's, that's, that's something that I was thinking about, too, uh, a couple of days ago is uh, when I look to my, my news feed on Facebook, it's like the entire world is full of activists and that's all I and Marxists mm. and uh, you know social Democrats and um, you know all these other like uh, groovy types of people that I would love to hang out with in real life but um, unfortunately that's not the reality that's not uh, at all. yeah but I mean I, I don't know it has something to do with how uh, Facebook um, you know their algorithms and how they 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 select what you see based on um, your likes and your your history of interactions on social media and uh, on the internet. So oh yeah, that's why. Yeah. for me, that's why um, my social media experience is probably very different than yours because for me, I tend to like things like um, like I'll I'll like things if like no one else likes them or if it's somebody if something appears on my page and it's from somebody who has like five friends, I'll I'll just like it. But then the problem is what Facebook then assumes is that I really like receiving stuff or hearing stuff about these people. And a lot of these times these are older Chamorros who are quite conservative and sometimes very racist. Mm. And so my feed is is kind of like yours except, you know, for every for every Washington Post article in which it says that, you know, Trump destroying norms and democracy for every, then you will have another one which says Fox News Trump vindicated Nunes memo is the Holy Grail, <laughs> and then so it is interesting because because I I liked certain people's stuff because they friended me and because I I wanted to be nice to them, and then Facebook keeps giving it back to me mm-hmm. even if I I don't like their stuff anymore but it keeps throwing me a lot of conservative stuff so 
That's why mm -hmm. it's, but for me, I like that. I like that in a certain way. The bubble is very comforting, yeah. but the bubble is not real. You know, that's Definitely. why um, I was on a, I was involved in a roundtable discussion in Hawaii recently. I was Skyped in, but, I, but we were discussing authenticity in the Pacific. Um, authenticity in terms of stuff like Moana, and because one of the one of the scholars in the in the working group was a consultant for Moana for for Disney, and so we were talking about this stuff, and then they asked me sort of like my conception of authenticity as somebody who writes comics and children's books um, from the from a Chamorro perspective or mm. from this part of the world, and I said that you know there's different types of authenticity, but um, Many people, their understanding of authenticity is if it hits you where you would like it to or where you wish it was. Mm. So that it's authentic because it's what I know or what I wish existed. Those are the two main things that people... So if it reminds you of nostalgia from your parents or your grandparents, you feel this authenticity because it's, it's what you know. Or if, um, if it's like what you wish existed then it, you want it to be authentic, so you label it authentic. And I said that that's, for me, authenticity is actually if something, if something goes beyond what you expected and it challenges you, because that's, that's, what, that's what reality is. So much, of, so much of what we do in our heads, including me talking like this right now, us making podcasts, people organizing their social media feeds, going to school, raising children, all of this is really about trying to control your reality, mm. trying to dictate what it means. And so authenticity means that it, will, it has to be beyond what you can handle in a certain way. It has to have that element of challenge to your identity, challenge to your expectations. And for me, that's good authenticity. Mm. So that, for example, like an authentic Chamorro children's book, in my view, would not avoid issues of colonization or militarization, but it would be in there even if it challenges you. Mm -hmm. So even if you're kind of like it leads to a strange conversation where your child is like, Mommy, why are the military people shooting the carabaos? Mm -hmm. Kind of be like, well, this is part of your reality. This is authentic. This is authentic. Sort of the the children's bubble that we create is the same as the the adult bubbles that we all create. There's nothing authentic about that. It's what you wish existed for your mm -hmm. children to encounter. And so that definitely so that's the way it is for social media and the bubbles that we have today is that for so many people, you try to manage it in a certain way so that you are insulated from the world, yeah. right? Like, I'll definitely acknowledge some of that. I wish, I like to organize my social media or my media consumption in a way so that it feels like Donald Trump is going to get impeached tomorrow. It's not the that truth, is, though, but yeah. <laughs> it's not the truth. But anyways, that was a, a long tangent me talking about authenticity <laughs> oh yeah um i guess you know for the purposes of my own media management um i have like i have just one or two like right crazy right-wing friends on facebook one of them is a, a filipino settler um he's a he's actually a cool guy i did a story with him when i was working at the pdn uh he uh, owns a, a car shop but um he posts a lot of uh, fox news excerpts and uh 
really interesting things. And one or yesterday, I found a a really uh, a really uh, big uh, hole in his game, and that's a uh, he shared something from he shared a meme from a, a Hawaiian activist about the Jones Act. And I'm pretty sure you and I have both seen um, yes. the the stat. It's like uh, cost of shipping to Shanghai versus to Hawaii. And um, that seemed to resonate with him. And then uh, immediately one of his uh, his friends in his circle was like, well, you know what's not being talked about is that uh, you know um, the islands don't really have anything to contribute, so there's not much trade going back and forth. And you know, I found an opening there, and uh, like I commented, I was like, I don't think that's what the purpose of this mm. this meme is. I think what they're trying to say is that um, the cost of goods uh, could be much lower if we were importing from places uh, closer to our region. And then um, he um, unfortunately he didn't respond, mm. but. Uh, you know, I, I keep like one or two of those people in my Facebook uh, profile. Yeah, that looks good. Just so I know what they're th- what they're talking about and what they're thinking. Like, it's yeah. good that you've identified that because the Jones Act is one of those ways in which you can get people who who may be ideologically different than you on decolonization into the conversation, right? Like, because you know, Manny, one day you will give talks in front of the Rotary Clubs on Guam. <laughs> Oh, man. And one day you will feel that fear. Yeah. I'm <laughs> just kidding. You will feel sort of that, that anxiety of, you know, the, a room which, which is, which which is going to be kind of antagonistic mm-hmm. to you, right? Kind of dismissive of you. Hopefully that's not what your dissertation defense is like. Oh, but, God. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, if you take that route, that was one thing that I found. Because if you take that route, you're talking about issues of trade, right? Mm-hmm. You're not talking about activists and their wishes and their desires and their... You're not talking about anything like that. For all the things that people say about how de- decolonization independence activists don't have any substance, it's just all this fantasy and stuff, mm-hmm. the Jones Act is something very concrete and very real. And you can, you know, there's there's arguments you could make for why the Jones Act could help, but there's far more as that you can make about how it hurts. Um and so it's good to find those points in the conversation, which you can bring in people like your, your right-wing friends or your cousins, yeah. sort of closer into it because, yeah, those, are, those are, are essential. I mean, you think about what did it take to get um, Eddie Calvo to, at least for a short period, say that he was against the military buildup. Mm, yeah. It took an issue which is of economic importance to the island, the issue of immigration and Guam's lack of control over immigration. Well, you know, once he felt sort of the the cold, the really the really cold, death bringing hand of colonial power over industries that are close to him and his friends. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly he's like, then suddenly he's like, man, America's so mean. <laughs> Built up sucks, man. <laughs> but, but other than that, you know, it's hard to get somebody like that really mm. passionate into the conversation. But if you can find those, you can bring them in. It may just be for a short period. Yeah. But at least it can bring them into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, Speaking of conversations, um, we're waiting uh, for our guests for tonight, uh, Moneka Flores, Stacia Yoshida, and Becca Garrison, who uh, all three of them presented last night at, at our teaching um, for the, um, well, they, they recently went to and came back from Okinawa 
uh, and they participated in a couple of protests and um, you know really building solidarity they also presented a, a, a letter expressing solidarity um, uh, sort of I don't know what what's the word um, pointing my finger disapproval at you. disapproval of um, what what's happening in Takai mm. um, pristine rainforests um, being dredged to build a, a fucking runway in the ocean oh like, Schwab yes, yes yeah dude Hanoko you know I I think you'd you'd probably more know more about that than I do but um when you look at at the map like it's it's ridiculous like mm. it's really outlandish what they're trying to do they're trying to build a long and expansive runway in the middle of the goddamn ocean using it's you know no it's it's really messed up and the more you get into that history, the more messed up it is. Because initially, the United States had agreed to close Futenma, right? Futenma is the base that almost everybody in Okinawa wants closed. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. had initially agreed to close it, but then later came back and said, we will only close it with conditions. And the conditions are that we need to expand our bases to the north to make up for what we're losing. Yeah. And because I had... Um, I'd interviewed one of the governors in Okinawa, not at that time, but later about his time there, and other politicians, and they basically all said, you know, that was that was, you know, when we knew who we were dealing with because the U.S. had agreed to leave that base behind, but then suddenly they come back and the Japanese government kind of backs them up and says they need more space up north, mm. and so it is, it is truly messed up because. One of the things that, and people on Guam can kind of understand this, because you play South versus the North, right? Or South versus the Central and the North. The South in Guam is less developed, the Central and the North more developed. In Okinawa, the South is the urban areas, and the North is more uh, natural and, and more sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was you take the base that everyone hates out of the heavy, the densely populated area, and you put it up North, and the only thing that suffers is like coral. You yeah. kill some coral, you kill some dugongs. If Serena has a summer home up there, it goes, but who cares about that? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but it's a testament to the people of Okinawa who are resisting this that they have been able to drag this out for so long. And because it goes back and forth, because in the, the city in the north, Nago, where Schwab is and Hinoko is, the leadership will change where the mayor sometimes will support the base expansion, sometimes will not support the base expansion. And so it's a, it's a delicate time now because a new mayor has just been elected who is supportive of the base expansion, mm -hmm. and he replaces somebody who has long been against the base expansion. And so, um, but if you go up there and if you see sort of the pictures of the coral, if you really explore that place it's the same thing as with Litexen or with Pogit yeah. or with Pogan. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, what the hell is the matter with these people? Right. Like, who sits in a, who sits in, oh yeah, for that one? This is the pre-show. Oh. <laughs> oh, you didn't bring your phone, No, I didn't. Ah, you're on live stream, hey. <laughs> yeah. Like, who, who sits in rooms? These are like comic comic book villains or like James Bond supervillains people that yeah. sit in rooms and are like look at this beautiful coral reef <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know what looks really good here a yeah. runway 
look, let's let's kill all the Nemo fish here. <laughs> and so, but it is very, very, anyways, it's... Yeah. <clears throat> but yes, we can we can start to wind it down as we prepare for our Definitely. guests. Yeah, so really quickly, um, you guys know how much I hate talking about money. Um, God, I, I can't stress that enough. Um, but our Patreon, um, you guys have been uh, so helpful in um, helping us grow our capabilities here. Um, Dispensa, I obviously I did not bring the tripod that um, you guys bought us today. Uh, I'm going to um, vlog myself later, and um, you know, but you know, there's that. And then uh, you guys have also helped, just you know, for for transparency, um, I did pay for some uh, advertising on Facebook, and um, we're looking into a really small uh, mobile lighting rig. Um, which would really boost our video uh, mm -hmm. quality. So see you Masi for all of those things. And uh, if you can, uh, Maget and I, and uh, I'm sure Stacia and Moneka, hey, uh, we, we want to encourage you guys to um, help spread the word. And um, if you can, in your networks, if you can uh, share the, the podcast page and uh, the, the Patreon campaign with uh, at least three people in your networks, um, people who... Uh, want to know more about these things media. yeah and appreciate independent media um uh just say hey uh here's a really cool podcast on guam locally grown uh called fanatsu and uh here's how you can support that would really uh help us out uh but again as always uh Sisu's Masi, and uh we'll see you guys on the next fanatsu live Asta. Mm -hmm. all right a podcast that may soon be exported to new zealand yeah oh, oh yeah wait did you get accepted? Yeah, I got accepted to Otago. Uh, Wait, so yeah, which so. talk is, uh, or like what? Congratulations. The it's media? really cold that was, there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's the Peace and Conflict Studies. Cool. So, okay. yeah. That I'm is where Sylvia went. Mm -hmm. And then I'm waiting for um, Auckland University. That's the, they, that's the communication program. So, cool. Yeah. So that's, that's the one I would so prefer yeah. to get into. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe you didn't meet her. So. Oh yeah, you did, you probably didn't meet she's, her. She's. She's. Uh, where is she at now? She's in a postdoc, right? Yeah, she's mm -hmm. at so Auckland so University. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking of Sylvia from Oh, no. No, this is Sylvia Frame. She. All right, so we'll just go ahead and get started. You're listening to Fanatsu, and I am now joined by. Stacia, Monica, and Becca, who um, all three gave a really awesome teaching last night um, about uh, the situation in Okinawa and also you guys' efforts to build solidarity uh, with movements going on out there. So I guess we'll, we'll jump into it. Um, what is what, what was the main purpose of the trip? And what, what, is, what is the vital uh, movement that's going on right now? Well, if I could start, actually, it's important to note that the relationship between Gohan and Okinawa has been cultivated by activists of various movements, indigenous rights movements, demilitarization movements, and um, environmental movements for over two decades now. And in fact, Andrew Santos first visited Okinawa in 1996, and he met several great indigenous rights activists, and that was um, 
one of the first sort of exchanges. And then people from Guam, like Dr. Lisa Linden and Tividad, Debbie Kinata from Nashan Chamorro, as well as Antiho Cristobal, the former senator and activist, have um, continued to nurture and sustain those relationships with some very important um, um, activists from Okinawa and the Philippines that have also formed the International Women's Network Against um, Militarization. And so um, we, there was a conference held here on Guam where women from all over the world, all from all members of the network came. And um, Maguette, Vicky, Julian, um, Ken, Maneka Dior, I mean, so many different people have come and gone back and forth through Okinawa meeting with the different groups. And we are the most recent uh, sort of group to be a part of this great long relationship now um, of people sort of unified and identifying um, with each other through similar struggles against expansion, military expansion, as well as environmental degradation and other human rights and social justice issues associated with the expansion of military bases in territories. And so that was sort of the, the foundation of this whole of, of basically over two decades now of solidarity movements and exchanges between both places. Yeah, um, so I'll just jump in, I'll uh, add just a little bit, you know, the more recent uh, solidarity exchange, but uh, just within the last eight months actually had to do with, uh, you know, the, the, the International Women's Network Against Militarism, as Monica said, was uh, here in Guahan in 2009, and then after that, it was held in Vieques, Puerto Rico in 2012. The most recent one was um, just last uh, June in 2017, held in Okinawa um, as a way to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the founding of that organization. And so it was a really great experience. We went out there. There were lots of uh, different folks from uh, islands all over the world. And uh, while we were there, we, uh, the Guahan delegation was invited by uh, Corazon Fabros, who is the uh, country rep from the Philippines, to go up to Takai and, you know, really try to uh, cultivate a deeper solidarity with those folks, a, a community of 150 people who lots of times don't get much attention because of, uh, you know, more attention is given to Hanoko. And so I went out there for a few days and had a great experience meeting um, activists um, there and really getting to know the, the situation there with the, the construction of the six helipads um, for bringing in Osprey uh, for training actually in uh, Futenma and Hinoko. And so it was a really amazing experience. Um, and then, you know, after that, uh, came back to Guahan and were, was contacted by some of those folks that they wanted to come out here and get to know, you know, Chamorro women, particularly on the ground doing work. And so, um, they came out in October. We had a really great uh, a week-long solidarity exchange. Uh, we went for a barbecue on the beach. We went around the island tour with Auntie Hope, uh, what we call the detour. And then we also, um, you know, went out for a walk with traditional healers through the Texan and then had two different events. Um, one where we showed uh, the uh, documentary, screened the documentary from Takai, Forest of Life. And then um, had a really great discussion. And then the second was a public forum where there were lots of activists and scholars, activist scholars. And we drafted and presented a unified statement. And so the, the folks who were co-sponsors um, co of, uh, of the events uh, included uh, Independent Guahan, Coalition for Peace of 
Guahan Coalition for Peace, of, uh, Peace and Justice, as well as the UOG Women and Gender Studies Program and the uh, Foots and Famalhaun. And so they came out and they were, uh, you know, signatories of that unified statement. And then Protegila Tex and Saber Tidian was an uh, uh, organization that came to support the statement as well. And then, of course, the folks who's, uh, who were sponsoring the women from Okinawa, the, no, the Takai resident, uh, Nohelipad Resident Society. And so it was this great organization, or, or great um, meeting of uh, uh, like-minded women and a couple cool men, too. And so uh, we, we presented that unified statement uh, with the goal of actually going to Okinawa and, and, um, and Japan and presenting that mm -hmm. statement to the governments there. Yeah. Cool. And then, so Stacia also, you produced a, um, a documentary. Mm -hmm. um, you want to talk about that at all? Or I really dig, dug the, um, the music that you, you featured. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, as Mecca calls it, cinema verity. <laughs> Shooting, like recording it as you were there. <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> a new, what, what a new was the terminology? Cinema, cinema verity? Yeah, cinema verity. <laughs> Capturing uh, it as it's happening, life uh, as, cool. it's, as it's happening. I learned nice. a new word. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so that one's like the more artistic version. I can, I'm planning on creating a different version of the short film. But I just, I really enjoyed, what I enjoyed about this video is how it's like, you know, you're just, you're really just you, more like a visual experience. And, you know, you're not trying to focus also on listening to what's being mm -hmm. said. You're, um, and then. And the music too is so powerful. Oh yeah, the music and it kind of, and I just, I just put in from the beginning of the song and then it kind of just fell into place with some of the clips, it complemented mm -hmm. it. And I really like how um, the music itself is also created by um, one of our friends we just um, met, uh, Takeshi Ishihara. Is, uh, is he on Spotify or anything, Takeshi? Um, well, or? see, the album is in, like, w like it's in Japanese, so mm -hmm. I need to try searching. Oh, yeah. I see. But he might be on Spotify. I think yeah. he's also on iTunes, because when you put the CD in your laptop, mm -hmm. all the songs... Come up right away. Wow. It didn't show up online. Maybe I'll, I'll get the details from you guys afterwards, and we can include yeah. that in the description. Yeah, he. he it, really cool. it, it's definitely very experimental and experiential. He, he mm -hmm. captures the natural sounds up in Takai as well as yeah. the sounds of the osprey. Because that that song was actually taken from the, his album that they he created with a couple of other people, and it's like basically a soundtrack of what's going on in Takai and Okinawa in wow. general. How did you Experiential and ex experiential and experimental. I, I kind of yeah. described it when I first heard it, like sci-fi yoga music. It, the album's <laughs> yeah, a trip. The album's yoga. a trip. But, <laughs> it, it, but you know, he's an amazing <laughs> artist and activist, yeah. and he is not originally from Takai. Moved up there to join the movement and loves Takai. He and his wife and family have been there for decades now, and. Um, we got to meet a lot of really cool people like that who come together. In fact, um, we stayed in a house uh, that were, was built really by people just donating different materials and labor, furniture, different all kinds of things, the dishes, the bedding, and it's, um, it's solidarity housing. So it's a way for activists to come and, and stay in this house. You pay a small fee, you bring food, you eat together, you, you prepare your meals together. Um, 
and you can stay here and and mm-hmm. be and join other activists and and support the movements that are happening up there and it's very it's just wonderful to be there staying in the house was in the residential area in Tsukai, very close to the Yambaru rainforest and mm-hmm. a couple days we were witness to Osprey activity and other military helicopter activity. And in fact, the night before we left Takai to fly back to Tokyo, there were helicopters flying up until 11 o'clock at night. And, and like you said, um, the officials there say that they have these agreements with the military where they, they promise not to fly over residential areas. But in the in the few short days that you guys were there, you actually witnessed it. Right. In fact, we I, the the video has some of the footage we were able to capture from the home we were staying in. However, um, it, it, you can't, it, they were so close that I think if they crashed, we definitely could have been in trouble. We would have had to evacuate the area. And the thing about these ospreys is they also carry radioactive material. Mm-hmm. And the Yambaro Forest is the main freshwater resource for the entire o- Okinawa Island. And so um, just like Latexin is right over, and the Northwest Field and the area, and Tailalu are right over our, north, our northern uh, aquifer or water lens, which pr- provides a lot of r- the majority of the island's fresh water. Mm-hmm. Um, if any of these, you know, the ospreys were to crash, or even all the bullets, six over six million bullets a year are fired in the firing range, there's um, a, a pretty uh, large risk, a, a lot of potential for water contamination. And so, um, there was an osprey that crashed just last October, just off the coast of Takai, and we were actually able to go near the near there as well as um, this farm where there was an emergency landing and crash. And so we we saw these places and how close they are in proximity to the residents. And then we also got to visit our friend Yukine's home, which was heartbreaking. She lives in the middle of the Yambaro forces. She she opened this beautiful cafe. She and her husband built their house with their with their own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and with their children and they had a guest house and they basically um in fear of crashes of military aircraft um and and for the safety of their children they they had to leave they had to relocate and which was completely devastating so to be in the forest to be surrounded by the sounds of birds to feel the coolness and the dampness from the heavy canopy and all of the amazing creatures that live there and then to know that people who love this forest so much and have tried to, you know, help um, live sustainably within that ecosystem have had to leave for fear of their own safety and lives. It's it is it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to and I think we can really connect to that here. Loving land so much, being mm-hmm. feeling connected to the land, and then all of a sudden being forcefully disconnected from the land, and it's traumatic and it's very painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing um, Yukine brings up a lot when we were when we were talking with her is you know that that um, that helipad was built about 300 yards away from her home and you can actually feel the vibrations of those ospreys before you can hear them and it's just really really traumatic for the for the young um, children especially but what she brought up in some of her presentations was you know that the the Japanese government was you know trying to say you know, because half of the half of the land that was taken in the Yamboro Forest by the United States military was actually given back, um, and part of the condition was that there would that um, the U.S. military would be allowed to build those six helipads, and so what she says is, is for for that small community, then there's not actually any type of um, you know. Uh, 
lessening of, of, of a burden for that family or for that community. It's actually a, a deeper entrenchment of militarization. And so why would there need to be a stipulation of giving back land um, in order to build uh, you know, helipads, right? So. And one thing you mentioned, Manny, is we did meet with the Japanese government in Tokyo, and um, they kept, we, we heard them tell our friends, um, Ikuko Isa and, um, and Yukine, um, Yukine Ashimine, um, that they had faith that the U.S. military was keeping to their agreements, that they weren't flying over residential areas. And um, that this was the biggest land return, and it's a great thing. Mm -hmm. And they kept repeating that, even though Yukine and Ikuko kept telling them, this is, these are, this is our life. These are our lives. This is what we experience with our families. And um, this, that's not what's happening. That's just not true. And so we had an opportunity to support that, because we had actually spent five nights in Takai. And we had, ex we had experienced firsthand this, this um, tremendous sound that really v reverberates through your body, shaking the whole house um, from like about 10 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night. These ospreys are just going in circles and circles. And in fact, the night before we left, they were going up until 11 o'clock at night. So it really disrupts the peace in, mm -hmm. in more ways than one, um, whether it's sound, whether it's, uh, whether it's really fear for your life. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to support, you know, what they were saying to their government. And we were also able to talk about how through efforts of Sabina Perez, one of the co-founders of Prate La Texan, how Prate La Texan was also able to, by using the Freedom of Information Act, expose a lot of violations that the public was unaware of, violations of um, the uh, Endangered Species Act that the United States Navy had um, done. And so we were also able to say, Agreements are always broken. Agreements are always violated, and there's there's proof. There's proof of it, and we're and we. It's because of our organization, the efforts of our, of of Sabina and other members of the organization that we're able to demand this information and make it public. Otherwise, a lot of people aren't even aware that these things are happening, and so um, we brought that up to the government as well. We also were able to discuss with the government um, the pending Earth Justice lawsuit. Um, we were able to talk about the recent UN resolution. Um, they, they kept repeating themselves. The representatives of the foreign affairs ministries and the defense ministries kept saying, that uh, they are not in a position to comment on the federal government's presence here in Guam, internal affairs the internal the affairs, States. yeah, between the United States and, and the territory, mm -hmm. and that um, they just had they could they just had faith that yeah. the military and the federal government mm -hmm. would keep to their agreements, and we told them, no, that's just we we have evidence, we have empirical evidence, mm -hmm. and also we've witnessed violations ourselves as visitors in Takai, mm -hmm. and so. Um, it was a powerful moment. We were very happy to support our friends in that in that moment, and um, and also be able to directly bring our issues, our concerns, um, information about growing resistance here to the to the construction of the live fire training range uh, to the government officials. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just want to say like that must be so infuriating, you know, mm. to. We, we, we're, we're so familiar with these scripted uh, responses. Uh, we understand your concerns, but unfortunately our office isn't able to comment. Like, I'm talking to you right now, you know, as a human being, and like, you know, I wanna know how you feel about these, uh, these Osprey flying over residential areas and all these things. But, you know, um, one of the podcasts I listen to is um, 
by uh, a guy who's more on the hippie side. Uh, his name is Duncan Trussell. But he talks about um, how, like, the people who are in, like, the Department of Defense and all these these big corporations, these institutions, like, probably a lot of them are cool, like, on an individual level. None of them are, like, probably inherently evil. But when they amass together um, to form these these uh, uh, formal bodies, they, they people do really evil things and the destruction of, rain, of rainforests of coral and uh, all these things and you know that inability for for someone on an individual level to to genuinely respond to your concerns and uh your experiences that that's so infuriating mm-hmm. so I, I just wanted to add that in did you want to see something after Moneka or i think um what was you know Manika did an amazing job when we were talking with uh, the defense ministry and also the foreign ministry. Foreign affairs ministry. Foreign affairs ministry. Really trying to impart on them, you know, the role that the Japanese government has in impeding a Chamorro right for self-determination and talking about the monies that are being given, um, you know, uh, to help aid in this, uh, the, the, the build-up construction. And so I think it was um, just a very powerful moment to watch and uh, be witness to, you know, uh, a strong Chamorro woman actually standing up to the Japanese government and to have them just keep repeating these these scripted comments. It really was infuriating. And then to listen to Yukine again bring up you know, no, what are you going to do? You keep saying that you're going to talk to the United States government, you're going to talk to the United States military, that you that you trust them, but this it, it, she just kept repeating herself, mm-hmm. kept repeating herself. And so, you know, it was, um, it was powerful, but it was also infuriating. Yeah. We were also joined by um, Suzuo Takazato, who's one of the founding members of the um, Okinawan women's uh, movement as well as the Okinawan demilitarization movement and one of the founders of the International Women's Network Against Militarization. She's sort of the anti-hope of Okinawa. Mm-hmm. She's she's a real awesome, can I say badass on this podcast? <laughs> and um, she um, she joined us for all of our public presentations and, and as, as well as this meeting with government officials. And she also backed us up um, in terms of the questions about the UN resolution um, that uh, supports a visiting mission to Guam, which both the United States and Japan voted against. And so she asked why. She asked the government officials why. What were the reasons why? And they said that uh, they couldn't provide us with the reasons. And so my follow-up question was, well, do you think and maybe we could get the, the reasons at a later time? And to which they responded, um, it is not our culture to provide this sort of response. Uh, about these sort of questions. And, and so I, you know, what can you say to that? You say, okay, well, thank you. We understand that uh, it's not protocol or not um, usual to provide these answers, but it's, but it's still, it's still related. These, t- these issues are related and that's why we're bringing them up. Mm-hmm. And so that's at least being discussed on public record and you're at least still confronting the issues without being too direct. Instead, you're asking questions. You're being, di- you're trying to be diplomatic without critical, being critical, or without criticizing people directly. And so, we kind of worded things like, um, "Are you aware of the growing resistance against the construction, you know, of the firing range on on Guahan? Or how how does the community feel? How do the people of Japan feel about their tax dollars being spent on this level of environmental destruction on?" on Guam, in a place where the indigenous people have no say in the plans for the relocation, 
to the island. So it was, was it was really it was a way of it was a way of bringing up the issues in a you know yeah. the in a in a in a different way. And I mean, you you guys said last night that um, unfortunately a lot of people weren't aware about the the situation here on Guahan and um, you know and the uh, the fact that a lot of them expressed um, re or sorrow at the fact that um you know they they've been asking for the for the marines to move out and little did they know that um they were moving them here where we face a lot of the same situations and um a lot of them were under the assumption that we were we were just another uh, little america in the pacific you know and um they expressed um their their deepest sorrows for their ignorance right mm -hmm. so it was also very surprising to hear that because you know of course, that's how you learn more about like what how the rest of the world sees the situation. So it was like, oh wow, you know, they see us as an extension, and but we're not. And it was very, it was very um, interesting to be able to demystify that kind mm. of um, perception and to talk with these people one on one, and also, I mean, but the, on like. Like one conversation that I had with someone, it was kind of sad though because I was asking, oh, like, would you ever come to Guam? And then they're like, no. And I was like, oh, why not? And then like, they were, and like, we're talking through Google Translate. So it's like, imagine having a very <laughs> serious yeah. conversation and you're not actually talking. And it was like, wow, this is like, but I, it's important to like have that conversation. But eventually we got someone to translate to help us because, you know, it's a very important topic. <laughs> you don't want it to be t like, you know, um, what is it, misunderstood, but they said that the reason why they wouldn't visit Guam is because of what their ancestors did, uh, their Japanese ancestors did, and I felt so like, oh man, like, no, like, that's so sad to like think that they would never visit Guam or any other place that, you know, their ja the Japanese may have invaded through history. And I was ch like trying to tell them like, you know, like it's, you know, we can't change like the like the past, and especially something that we ourselves didn't directly do. You know, all we can do is like move forward and build better relationships yeah. with each other. And then I was telling Moneka about it, and then she's like, "Okay, make sure you let him know too that you know it's not just the Japanese who did bad things; it was also the Americans that came to Guam and mm -hmm. you know occupied us and still do." And so it's like. You know, just to remind, like, you know, like, wow, like, don't hold on to that burden, especially when it's, like, you know, you're going to be, like, yeah, you know, like. Well, it's um, definitely a sign of that traumas are generational, and, mm -hmm. you know, World War II is really interesting. We learned a lot about the Battle of Okinawa and World War II history in Okinawa, and very similarly to Guam, you have Japanese and American forces fighting in indigenous land. Uh, indigenous people are sort of like uh, collateral damage. The damage to the, you know the island parts of the island are devastated from the conflict, and there are narratives that are privileged. There are, there are dominant narratives that you hear over and over again. In a lot of cases, it's a dominant American narrative or dominant Japanese narrative, and so the indigenous narrative is sometimes marginalized. And so, but in these conversations, we were able to address everything. We were able to uh, contemplate um, different uh, traumas and and sort of things we still carry, you know, whether we're indigenous or not, whether we were civilians or not in those battles. And I feel like, yeah, we had a lot of apologies. We had apologies for what the Japanese government is doing mm -hmm. with the relocation. We had apologies <laughs> for the war 
We had um, apologies for people not realizing that we weren't just America and the Pacific. And it, it, it was, it was a, that's, that is really intense to hear people apologizing on behalf of their, their own communities and their country mm-hmm. um, for things that are happening to you. And something, too, we were really confronted with is this idea that people assume that we are not just America and the Pacific, but that we all think, we all see the Americans as liberators during World War II. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and that we're very patriotic people, which I'm not saying isn't partly true or, mm-hmm. or, or even true to begin with. I'm saying that it's more complicated than that. And we were able to even talk about that, that, you know, Guam has a high military enlistment for many other reasons as well. We are a poor community. A lot of young people graduating from high school think it's their first ticket out or it's mm-hmm. their only way they can have professional or educational development or, or growth or op- other opportunities. You know, it's like, what do you do after high school? If you go to college, if you can't afford to go to college and you, there's no real jobs, you join the military. And so um, we were able to talk about that, too. And, and what was really cool is people in Okinawa said, that's just, we, it's the same here in Okinawa. It's the mm-hmm. same here in Okinawa. So we were also able to address this sort of um, assumption about even Hachimura's view. And, and we talked about, like, that we really need to hear more about Okinawa. Our community can really benefit from learning more about the challenges, the struggles that are that are being faced there and how their communities are responding. And, you know, it, it, there's so much to be, I feel like so much more we, we need to find out. And also about how their movements have been successful in delaying some of the plans for military expansion or, or in even addressing a lot of the horrible injustices that have been done to the communities there, so. Mm-hmm. Miguel, uh, you're probably going to head out in a bit soon. Um, is there anything you wanted to add? I mean, as far as like in, in the whole like geopolitical uh, scheme of things, you know, like how how do um, both the Okinawa community and how how do we um, win out in in this game? You know, this you know colonialism. How do we? Mm. What's the end game here? Well, one of the things to one of the things that's is very empowering about um, about news from this trip because, in some ways, the the news it it can be depressing because you're talking about struggles that have been going on for a while and then, you know, changes in leadership in Nago, court cases over Hinoko that were lost and, you know, the first time that um, a large delegation went from Guam to Okinawa, you know the they had they were still successful in preventing the the helipads from being built you know and they had they had put big uh they had basically covered over the entrances into those areas they had built like uh camps in front of them literally blocking them off and then eventually they built you know the DOD and the Japan in the in the government built roads to go completely around them. They started to bring things in by helicopter to sort of secretly build things in the background and and so on the one hand sort of there there is just ways that it's you know that they're delaying and they're stalling but what's and and so it's it's successful in some ways but in others it's it's finally kind of giving way because governments and militaries have so much resources and so much power and it's hard for for the grassroots or for for regular people to really fight against that like you know the the riot police get to go there every day and they get to feed their families others don't get to do that you have to 
make a choice whether you're going to kind of work for a living or whether you're going to dedicate your life to something like that. So it's a but what is what is overall empowering though in both examples is that the people are kind of changing in consciousness and starting to recognize that it is more than just like a particular fight over land, right? So that's why in Guam, like you see that the the military build up conversation, the it eventually evolves into a larger discussion of of political status, right? Because if it's really just about this one piece of land, then you should all be fine if we just don't build on that piece of land, right? So that's why the military says, well, fine, no pocket, Latexan instead. But instead, it it moves, and and the more it moves, then the more people sort of get into the conversation because it's not really about that particular place. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can get people that when they talk about destroying things or disrespect or cultural resources, they're really talking about the sovereignty of a place, the better. And in Okinawa, it's the same way. The fact that, you know, the fact that people would go up, come up to uh, to you guys and, and apologize for sort of Guam's role in this or the way Guam is being treated, that's an impressive thing. Um, when, when this was first announced, you know, Okinawans were not thinking like that in any way. When we first went, when uh, Lisa helped organize sort of the first big group that went seven years ago, um, and it had like uh, Levin and Kara and Keisha and Ken, and like it, basically the people there were basically kind of like, don't you want the military? They're your military, mm -hmm. and so it was it was very interesting because the the local activists at that time were kind of like, and it's some of the people who today will will say, sorry, you know, we will tell the people we don't want it. Well, the U.S. shouldn't put it in your island there. Seven years ago, they were saying you should have it in your island because it's your military. And they would say, they said stuff to us like, well, what about if we just protest it and get rid of it in our islands? And then when it goes to your islands, we'll protest it there too. So just hold on to it for a while to get it away from our islands. And then we will help you get rid of it later. Mm -hmm. So there was not a lot of the larger consciousness of the issue. It was very much tied to sort of these particular places. And part of that was because Okinawans thought of themselves as just being mistreated. There was no larger issue involved. The first time that I met an Okinawan delegate to come to Guam was like in 2007, at the very start of the build-up conversation. And I asked, I asked them, you know, do you guys think of yourselves as different than the Japanese? And they're like, yeah, we're a little bit different, but we're the, basically the same. We just don't like the way they're treating us. And it was kind of like that. They, you know, were different culturally, but ultimately we're, we're Japanese too. We just have Okinawan culture, but we're really Japanese people. Mm. But what you see now is that Okinawans, as they have these cultural, their own cultural renaissance, they want to take on the idea that they're indigenous people there. They want to take on the idea that they're colonized people. That the, and decolonization, like the first time that I went to Okinawa, Everyone asked me, what is decolonization? Oh, we don't need that. That that sounds scary. We don't want that. And so when I gave a presentation, there was a, an old Okinawan woman who said, but if we decolonize, then we'll just be, and then I remember she used a word which is an offensive term for an islander, like a primitive person. She said, we will just be like those people. And so, but now you have 
those same people who are embracing the idea because it gives them a means of engaging in a larger way. Because you may, the forces against you, you may not be able to win on this one battle, but if you make it part of this larger struggle, then where it's not just about this one place, but it's about our sovereignty, it's about our decolonization, then you can kind of keep the battle going. You can get more people involved in it. And and so it, it's been super promising and super exciting to see that because it did lead to a very different relationship even between people in Guam and people in Okinawa. Whereas before, they would have seen us as just being an extension of America, but because of their own awakening, because of their own, because, you know, they protest the bases, but it doesn't happen. Japan tells them, you know, this is what we pay you for is to have bases. Eventually, it gets to the point where Okinawans get frustrated and they start to look for other narratives to animate their resistance. This can't just be because we're, we, we're, we're further south, because we live on an island. This can't just be because of that. It has to be something more. And so that's when they start getting into independence, decolonization, indigenous rights. Um, human rights. Human rights, exactly. It's because finally they, they're, they're starting to see, and tomorrow as we go through the same thing, right? You just think, oh, we're just treated different. We're just like this. But f then you realize, no, that's, there's, a, there's a different struggle here. And the sooner you embrace that, then the better prepared you are for that fight. And so that's why, that's for me sort of, that's why I think that Okinawa and Guam, as we move internationally and as we try to build these solidarity connections, like we're going to get stronger. We're going to get stronger because, and what I really like about the three of you going is it's not just like one person and it's not just like once a year, like some of those, sol some solidarity efforts are like, you know, in the Asia Pacific, you have, oh, we're having a conference on militarization. We got to have somebody from Guam. We got to have somebody from the Philippines. We got to, and it's, it's usually the same people, but it doesn't get into the communities. And so the fact that, that you guys went into Takai and you guys were, were, were really there, like that shows a big difference in terms of the movements. And the fact that, that you want to keep meeting and you want to keep organizing, that's very different than the usual model for international solidarity, mm -hmm. which is like the every two years we have a conference right. and then we can hang I, out. Can I comment on that? Because this was a very grassroots oriented, uh, organized um, exchange. It was really um, because of relationships, right? So Becca, through Lisa, met Corazon, who introduced Becca to these women in Takai, who, and so, and it's through those relationships with, with uh, Lisa and Suzuyo and Cora and Becca and the two women from Takai, that the women came to Guam and then they made these relationships with so many people here. And then, and then the three of us were actually individually invited by a grassroots organization called One Left Sakai, and that was actually through relationships we, we've built with Mizuki. And both, um, so the two organizations that sponsored us are the No Helipad Resident Society, I'm sorry, the Sakai No Helipad, the, the No, no Helipad Sakai Resident Society, <laughs> sorry about that, um, which Yukine and Ikuko are a part of and our leaders in, and then Mizuki, runs One Love Takai, founded it with her friend Shoko Shimizu. Suzuki, Suzuki sorry, Shoko Suzuki, who we met and, and love also, but um, and became friends with. But though that's an organization that's based out of Japan. They, they don't live in Okinawa. They're, yeah, they're in Tokyo. And there are a lot of urbanized young people who 
our friends of Mizuki and artists who then through her, those relationships and then that kind of keeps going. So our participation and our visit there was really a result of, of grassroots efforts, not a big conference, not an academic gathering. And um, that's something I think we should be very proud of. Like Maget said, it's showing that we're getting stronger by through these relationships, through cultivating and nurturing these relationships. And um, and we were able to, to um, facilitate these meetings with the government there. We were able to facilitate these public presentations both here in Guahan and in Okinawa. And um, and the, and it's it's beautiful. And then other we get our of our you know we're parts of these other groups, and we support all of our groups and our friends support supported that time the women were here. You know whether it was to make sure they had a house to stay in, Becca get, Becca made sure of that, or they were trans, you know given transportation, food. Um, we had wonderful facilities for the events and marketing. Everybody kind of does whatever they can wherever they can, and. Um, it's it's really it's very powerful to be a part of that. It's very powerful to do it outside of a traditional structure, and it really does show that that even all those wonderful efforts of people who were going to conferences and people who were doing you know doing these great things that they're expanding, they're growing in different ways, and so mm -hmm. that's that's a really cool thing to think about. Cool. Well, hold on. I want my mic back because sure. the levels are all uh, weird. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. No <laughs> and we can play you some of that music. By the way, we have Ooh. some of oh, that totally. music, and we also <laughs> oops, we sorry, we also have this great um, song that's like a Ooh, oh, yeah. that's like to. a rally song. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. See, yeah, you so, could have sing it last night. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it we we got to go to um, we got to go to um, the rally for Mayor Inamine who. Um, recently lost the election and it was heartbreaking. But he was um, he was a, a he's a very beloved mayor. He served many terms, and he is um, one of the main issues in his platform is to not relocate the facilities from Fatenma mm -hmm. to Hanoko, and he lost to a, a pro relocation mayor. But in that rally, we were in a large room that was like the size of uh, the field house, and there were thousands of people, and it was really powerful to hear a leader, a public leader, speak mm. very openly and very critically about these issues. And I have to say that we wish we had more of that here in yeah. Guahan. Um, it is a brave thing to do. And, you know, there were lots of theories as to why he wasn't reelected. A lot of our friends believe that people were intimidated or paid to vote for the other the other guy because he was such a loved mayor. And they, they really were so hopeful and um, some people really believed he was going to win. So anyway, at the rally, which was really powerful, we heard him as well as another mayor talk about the, these issues and how they'll do whatever they can to prevent this mm -hmm. um, relocation. And so the song that played at the end was called uh, Ganbaro, or it's a, an expression. It's kind of like Hitzalatmon, right? Yeah. Like we're going to come together. We'll do this together. We can, we're, you know, we're better. We're stronger together. Uh, let's, yeah, let's do this. Let's mm -hmm. go kind of thing. And yeah. so uh, we got to hear that. Um,
cool to hear that song it was very inspiring it's this uh this call to to stand up to rise up together it's a it's a real rallying call and um it is okinawan there's beautiful okinawan banjos or string instruments in it and the man who's singing is actually a famous singer from okinawa mm. so um that was one thing that uh, we appreciated was a lot of the art a lot of the music yeah. and um pe- people did really express a lot of pride in being okinawan mm. so that was that was really powerful yeah yeah i mean gosh i wanted to save this for later on i don't don't want to make this this podcast about me at all but uh, i mean like music it touches into a very uh, a deep fabric in us and um for for a while like i I was torn because uh, i think i've shared with some of you um that uh, i was a dependent in okinawa actually and um like listening to to the sanshin and um, the guy singing, and then the um, well, I don't want to do the I don't know what you would call the what the girls do like sai sai like that stuff yeah. like yeah like it it it's something that that's lodged in my memory mm-hmm. and um, uh, because of of why I was there um, and like sort of the, the the framing that goes on with how I constructed my reality as a dependent there like I I have very positive. Um, uh, associations with with sure. the, the music and all those things, but yeah, so it, it's uh, I'm torn. Um, I obviously I know I know where I stand now. Of course, but it's and it's it is complicated. Yeah. I and mean, we were even when we were there, we told them you know we have friends and relatives who are stationed here. Yeah, exactly. You know, Dark tomorrow's in these bases and and um and it's it's very complicated. Some of us have family members who are veterans and it's it's definitely the really important thing to talk about or to think about when we're talking about these issues of mm. injustice and militarization or demilitarization is that being anti-militarization does not mean you're anti-veteran or yeah. you know it, there it's just much more nuanced and 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 complex than those things and i think becca actually in sharing you know we were talking earlier about generational trauma and bringing and sharing our different perspectives and experiences becca uh was able to talk about that also i mean in her own family history mm-hmm. yes yeah, so um <clears throat> one thing that you know was, was a very um you know just thinking about my own family history and involvement in uh, militarization around the Pacific, uh, you know, and other places. You know, my grandpa was actually in the Battle of Okinawa. And so, you know, discussing that and trying to get, you know, folks to think about, um, you know, particularly the Japanese relationship to Okinawa and, you know, as parallel to the United States relationship to Guahan and thinking about our types of different settler responsibilities, which I've talked a little bit about in podcasts before. Um, But 
thinking about, you know, what what would be the non-Indigenous support? What is our place? What are our roles in that? And, you know, what are our connections to these histories and these traumas? You know, as we, I was discussing in the teaching last night, you know, our settler traumas and you know, guilt and responsibilities are definitely not the same as indigenous, um, you know, traumas, but we're linked through those histories. And we really need to come together and begin to have these difficult mm -hmm. conversations if we're going to, you know, help cultivate this greater consciousness towards decolonization. And so yeah. being able to talk about how I felt connected to Okinawa through my own family history was powerful um, because then there were other, um, you know, Japanese folks who would come up to me later just, you know, crying and thinking about their own family history and and their own, you know, grandfather's involvement in, um, you know, different types of uh, uh, war campaigns and torture. And so really trying to manifest, you know, a, a transformation in that consciousness, but also building a greater solidarity in the ways we can respect each other, um, settler or indigenous. Mm -hmm. And that, that's that's one of the things that I was thinking about as well is uh, I know that there is um, there's a pretty substantial Chamorro community out there, and um, I know that who love Okinawa who love Okinawa and um, even beyond that um, on a on a more general like dependent level there there is a, a love of Okinawa uh, so much so that uh, even after graduation from Dodea um, people just uh, refuse to leave there and they get into the whole uh, mess of, uh, of settler colonialism themselves. But they, they affectionately refer to themselves and each other as Oki bums. Um, and yeah, but uh, like uh, on a on the tomorrow note, you know, like if there was a way at all where we can build solidarity in the people who are living there, um, a lot of them are only there for like three or four years. But there are also uh, quite a lot of people who uh, have been there their whole lives, uh, contractors and their and their children, yeah. who've made a living in Okinawa. If there is a way where we can foster solidarity within oh, those groups, sure. you know, like. Well, you know what? I if I could just share real quick. I have um, a relative who's there right now, and I didn't tell him that we were coming, and I didn't get a hold of him. And ch culturally, as a tomorrow, you don't do that. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna go somewhere and there's family there, you have to check in people can get really offended and hurt and they kept us so busy anyway we wouldn't have had time to visit but he there was so there was some disappointment that I didn't check in with him we didn't have any time together and I felt definitely felt guilty and when I told him when I had apologized and he to hear him say just keep doing big things and mm -hmm. kind of f feeling that he some support some identify identification with the work that we were doing when we were there I was feeling all kinds of feelings, you know, mm -hmm. because you kind of want to avoid things and then you feel this tremendous guilt. And then when somebody who you do love kind of acknowledges, even though they might not be in a position to politically disagree with you or to politically agree with you, um, they acknowledge the importance of the work you're doing and they're indigenous and they are there and they love Okinawa also. Um, it's very powerful and it's very, it's just, it's all over the place, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, there's definitely potential for that. I, I question. I, I was questioning, like maybe I should have invited them. Maybe they would have been open to it. Maybe they would have seen themselves in a different way there. Maybe they do feel like that, but they just don't have an mm -hmm. opportunity to talk about it. And so, so that acknowledgement from this person um, was great. 
it was wonderful and it just kind of was like a real weight lifted because I yeah. did feel some guilt because like I said you can't go anywhere if there's tomorrow's there and not check in with the tomorrows yeah. you know it's just not cool it's not mm-hmm. it's we just don't do that <laughs> you just don't yeah. do it so it was I'm you know it was um it was cool to 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 kind of come home and then people were like hey were you in Okinawa and I was like yeah I'm so sorry and then for him to say hey you know what it's cool next time keep doing big things that was just a huge all kinds of feelings relief you know reconsideration reevaluation and possibilities what are the possibilities for sure yeah so yeah I, I definitely think there's possibilities I mean like speaking on a personal level um, there was, I felt like I, I myself was in this third space. Like, mm-hmm. I, I could see the harms that the military was doing to um, the Okinawans, but I, I was a part of this, I was a part of the problem, essentially. Um, but I also didn't feel like my peers, I couldn't relate to my peers. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe chalk that up to my own experiences growing up here on Guahan before moving to California and then Okinawa. So. I definitely think that there there probably is quite a few more uh, Chamorro dependents, um, mm-hmm. you know, military members who who feel that that same, um, who feel removed, yeah. you know. And I even feel like in independent Gohan, we're confronted by this conversation all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, how have people who have, you know, previously or even very recently benefited from institutions of oppression? You kind of just find yourself in those positions, and then when you come to a point of of even acknowledging it and talking about it, you know, it's um it's it's very meaningful. I, I know it is as a member of Independent Guahan when we have conversations with folks, whether it's during reoccupation day and we were on the parade route or mm-hmm. whether it's at one of our GAs and people will say, you know, I, they're, they're talking about their own, just trying to make sense of things, you know. Right. That's, a, that's a very powerful position to be in as much as it is painful to say that we have benefited, that some of us have benefited from these institutions, how you navigate that, it's still a very powerful position to, to, to be in because you're acknowledging this is, these issues and that, you, that there's hope, that you want to reconcile all of that. And you know that you want better for everybody. And that's a, it's a beautiful, it really is a beautiful, I guess, perspective or, or place to reevaluate things from, yeah. Now, um, the uh yes exactly the uh the teaching uh there was a moment there where it got very emotional uh for you station mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i wanted to know um mm-hmm. you know obviously uh dude uh first of all great coverage on social Thank media mm-hmm. and um it it's mind-blowing like i felt mm-hmm. it watching your instagram stories when uh, i was watching um the manamko being carried mm-hmm. away but you um uh having uh some ethnic um ties to mm-hmm. to japan mm-hmm. and um did, did anything resonate with you um on that note and even uh just the fact that they're manumko and imagining your own grandparents and uh you know being carried away you know like what what exactly resonated with you in those moments i think also what made it very personal is because i am half japanese mm-hmm. half tremoral so it's like it's it's like Physically, yeah, you can see like they look like your gra- they look like my grandparents because my grandparents are Japanese, and um, but I think also too because I'm also like you know I'm very reflective. So like even if they if I wasn't Japanese, I could just still like growing up in a culture where we take care of our elders. It's just like oh my god, you know these are like old people and like you know they're not like trying to fight these right police like punch them or anything and they're getting carried away, and. Um, uh, and also, I'm just I'm just glad that I was able to record it, 
like because when we were there i was crying a little bit when we got there but i was still recording so i'm just glad like at least you know i can do both even though it's like you don't like after you look at the footage like afterwards it's like wow you know that just happened but it's also like a good thing that you're able to record it as you're there because it's like imagine if it wasn't recorded because then you'll be like did that really just happen so it's mm. able to like really again yeah to resonate because we're able to see it again and that's and um i'm just glad that i'm interested in media because it is important to document mm-hmm. and and to be able to show other people you know it, it just uh, strengthens you know our perception and then creates more discussion like this is actually you know it's like it's different to talk about something but then whereas if you can actually see there's you know evidence that this is this exists um but and then I said at one of the presentations we did in Japan I was like um you know I feel closer to my Japanese heritage because usually when I go to Japan I don't I just like do not I just eat and shop with my mom because my I don't know my mom's not I didn't grow up in an activist family I'm act, probably the only activist in my family um so it was very it was it was it was very meaningful for me to be able to see the side of Japanese people that I don't normally see like I'm just so used to going there still feeling kind of like an outsider because I don't get to have conversations with these people about issues that matter not just like oh you know what's the latest thing that's selling it we're talking about things that are hard to talk about but that matter so I really I'm really grateful for this trip it made me feel a bit more like assured of my identity because it's very hard because it's like oh you know I'm Japanese Chamorro but I don't speak fluently in either languages I speak fluently in English and it's just like oh like really am I Mm. What I am I my her- own heritage, or I'm just like you know like brought up in just like a, you know, a mm-hmm. mo- like a modern day <laughs> like millennial or well, I don't think I'm millennial. I don't know, but let's not get into that. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah. Uh-huh. I just gotta say, Stacia was our. She was an amazing. She's so talented. She's a great photographer. She got a lot of great film footage. She was our DJ a lot of the time. <laughs> And um, she's very, she's a little timid, and she didn't speak, obviously, as much as Becca and I did, um, but when she did, it was extremely powerful. People just adored Stacia, and whenever she did speak, it was extremely impactful, very moving. People would just just hang on every single word, and she affected a lot of people emotionally and and inspired a lot of people. So it was really awesome to have Stacia on this trip. It was awesome to have. I'm so glad that I got to go with these two great ladies because, like, no, you you guys need to go, you guys specifically. Like, because, you know, like, one of us wasn't going to go. Like, no, you guys, we all need to go. So I'm just glad it worked out. You know, yeah. You guys are a powerhouse team for (laughs) sure. And so, um, Becca, I understand you're leaving tomorrow. Mm. How... For, for how long? Are you going dark? <laughs> are you going uh, under the radar? <laughs> what's yeah, what's your plan? Uh, yeah, her, she's going, going on tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going on tour. No, you know, uh, so part of my, you know, my research is looking at relational experience of militarization on island colonies of the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. And, and the methodological approaches settler responsibility. But I look at specifically Guahan, Koholabe, Koholabe, Hawaii, and Vieques, Puerto Rico. And so I'm 
trying to wrap up my dissertation, mm. slowly but surely. And um, I'm just going to check into these places that I've previously lived and, you know, been a part of these communities. So I'm heading to Hawaii for almost a month. And then at, right after that, going to Vieques, Puerto Rico for about a month. And, you know, um, in Hawaii, I'll be going with um, the Women's Voices, Women Speak. That's the chapter of the International Women's Network Against Militarism um, in Hawaii. And we're going to go to the Big Island, so we're going to be up in Pohakaloa and also uh, Mauna Kea, mm -hmm. uh, checking in with what's happening there. And then in Vieques, um, really part of the trying to you know, kind of give back to that community that's given so much to me and my research and just my own development and settler consciousness. Uh, you know, after the devastation of those two hurricanes, the island is still just really, really uh, messed up. And so going to help rebuild homes and gardens and be with people that I love, and so very excited about that. And then headed to New York to present at an Aquapelagos Archipelagos conference about my re my research and then finally the last leg will be home I haven't been home in almost two years so I'm very excited to see my family um, back in the redwoods and then I'll be back here in awesome. May so yeah I'll be back I'll be okay, back <laughs> I was right I wouldn't see you again for a while but <laughs> yeah so man uh, like before you guys walked in, me and Miguel were talking about how um, social media sort of has this tendency to sort of close in your social bubble, and it sort of mm -hmm. shapes your own reality. And um, I, I've been fortunate enough to to make some friends with um, the Puerto Rican diaspora uh, movement in in New York. Um, and so, like, this is uh, a few dudes on there who I've become friends with are very active on social media, uh, posting about like independencia and uh, like uh, decolonization and um, all these things. So I, I feel like there's a, there are these bridges um, in in our struggles and our movements. Um, but uh, I mean, you you you're well traveled um, in within these communities, um, and for much of the same purpose. So, um, like, is, is there a way where we can we can strengthen these bonds and we can we can really join together um, the struggle against imperialism? I think, you know, like the efforts that we've seen with Okinawa and Guahan is just really the grassroots, you know, and the not giving up, you know, keeping these these solidarities alive, going to these places, meeting with people, having these discussions, you know, it's not just any small thing. You know, these aren't just, uh, you know, uh, small islands in a vast sea, right? Mm -hmm. These aren't just micro spaces. These are important places that are, are, are integral to U.S. imperialism and expansionism. And so as we begin to think about United States expanding out into the Caribbean, out into the Pacific, we also need to think about activism in that way too, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, these voices, these, uh, these solidarities, um, they're not microscopic. They're actually huge and they're bold and they're empowering, mm -hmm. yeah. Can I make a comment on that? Because yeah. I've, I've been to Puerto Rico twice, and uh, I stayed with friends in their homes, and I actually met a really cool group of Puerto Ricans at a, at a week-long uh, workshop in D.C., and they made friends with them, and then I got to go to Puerto Rico and do workshops there and hang out with them. And um, what I loved about going to Puerto Rico is everybody I talked to was uh, very conscious, mm -hmm. very pro-independent, very talked also like decolonization, um, experts in their own right or activists or artists and um, and educators a lot of them were scholars and um, it was really cool because everybody knows about Guam it's really interesting because mm -hmm. going to the continental United States for years for conferences and meetings and whatever yeah. people don't know anything yeah. 
They don't know anything. Going to Puerto Rico, people, you say, oh, are, you're, you're from Guam? You're, you're a colony just like us. And it's <laughs> so refreshing to hear that. So the potential really for alliances is, is very strong. And I remember, too, being in my early 20s and meeting some act, some important tomorrow activists for the first time, like Uncle Ed Benaventi, yeah. who would say things like, gosh, you know, the Puerto Ricans, look at, they, they didn't have to speak English like us. They kept it, they kept it, even though it's another colonial language, Spanish, mm-hmm. it's, it, the activists here also admire that the invasion of the English language did not affect Puerto Rico the way it did us. Mm-hmm. And so there are these consciousness um, there's this consciousness, consciousness that does exist between yeah. Guam and Guam and Puerto Rico, but you know we really need to more actively, I think, engage. It is a little bit more difficult because they're literally on the other side of the world. Travel is definitely more expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, I, what I loved about being in Puerto Rico is some of the people I met were like, "Oh, I know how to speak English, but I refuse to speak English." So oh. that's also something <laughs> else, you know. But um, it's I I love Puerto Rico and and Becca actually speaks fluent Spanish so that's how she that's uh, that's another really cool si. thing about her experience. Es <laughs> 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 verdad. Si, señorita. No, but you know I think that these these narratives they exist you know even though we're not talking about them in our official histories that we're learning in uh, you know in the United States in Guam in Puerto Rico in Hawaii which of course are written by colonizers we have to we have to really think about how there is this narrative right that mm-hmm. exists and it's alive and it's always unfolding and so not to be bogged down or to think about you know that there's just this one way of understanding history there's all these many ways yep. and perspectives and positionalities that are constantly growing and we got to do our job too to bring them uh, to share it as much as possible whether it's from the larger pacific uh you know oceania and puerto rico o- okinawa we really need to bring um, our community could really benefit from hearing these counter narratives, lost narratives more often and engaging with them a lot more. And so I think Independent Guan is one organization that's definitely doing that, but we can do so much more and we really should because the more we hear stories out of Hawaii, the more we hear stories out of, out of Puerto Rico and Okinawa, the more we're also inspired and we want to look for these things in our own community or we want to identify differences and, and, you know, whatever it is, we want to, this is a search and I think a lot of us are, have been hungry for it for a long time, whether we're looking for Pacific writers or we're looking for music or we're looking for Pacific artists. It's the same, like territory should know about each other. Yeah. People should know about the movements and and we need to provide as many opportunities for people of all ages and backgrounds to find out and to uh, engage in that. Mm-hmm. Nick, I have a really cool, uh, so I know we, we've talked about cryptocurrencies before. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh no, some of our friends are totally gonna stop listening to this podcast right now. Oh man, <laughs> no, no. Because they're tired of us talking about uh, crypto. No, no, well, okay, Beck, what's going on in Puerto Rico? Well, I just, I just read an article the last few days about you know these cryptocurrency folks that are actually trying to are moving to uh, Puerto Rico and they want to establish their own crypto like uh, uh, a currency. Yeah, crypto, but like no, yeah. their own crypto town where they're like Whoa. the whole town is built around this cryptocurrency, yeah. and so it sounds amazing, but it's also we need to think about is this another form of colonization because these are white mm. folks coming yes. from the U.S. You know. Yeah, so. I mean, crypto had a lot of promise to be. Uh, power to the people money. It was supposed to be outside of banks and taxes and supposed to be a way to, because it's digital, you get to move it real quick. Um, unfortunately, that's not 
the case now. If you cash, it's it's a commodity. So if you cash out, if you sell, you have to report it on your taxes. And it, it and as you know, Manny, I'm sure it t- it does take some time to move that money around. Yeah. You know, there there's potential to empower indigenous communities with crypto for sure. Yeah. You know, you, you you hear it that the possibilities for it saving communities from poverty. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, it's it. it I mean, that's why I got into it, because I really thought it was power to the people money. And I think we maybe want to do a different podcast all on it. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's also concerns of what it does to the environment. You know, there's also concerns that, um, as Becca said, you know, who's still really controlling it at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. It's... Um, it is. It would be so cool if indigenous nations came up with their own crypto. But, you know, what? how do you build an infrastructure for something like that? Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, there are ways we can benefit, but money is an illusion. <laughs> All money, whether it's a piece of paper or a piece of plastic, now it's crypto. And so it is it is what we, it has a meaning that we invest into it. And so that's also po- why it's problematic as well. Yeah, right? it, it's totally pro- problematic. It's not a perfect system, but I mean, like at, at the, uh, the teaching last night, you were talking about how a lot of these activists oh over there, um, are, able, are still able to sustain themselves while being a full-time activist, and that is amazing. Um, again, obviously, my mind was wandering towards the idea that if there was a, like, a cryptocurrency for activists, indigenous activists, um, you know, internationally, you know, like... Oh, that'd be so cool. <laughs> yeah, it would be so cool. It would yeah. be so awesome. And then we can yeah. move resources just among each other. Uh-huh. Yeah, like, is we can't... <laughs> yeah, you need you know you need to you need to buy a right. You need to build a you need to build something. You need yeah. to build a solidarity house. Yeah, <laughs> we can't send you some wood, mm-hmm. but here's you know twenty. We this is all the money collected. Absolutely, that yeah. would be really cool. It'd be so cool if that was outside of taxes and banks and mm-hmm. traditional institutions for sure. But that's you know crypto is is yeah. Right now it's not do, um not not seeing it's the best day. Although things tend to come back around so. Mm-hmm. It might even be a good time to invest. Who knows? I don't know if oh, I want yeah. to tell all of our friends to put in a bunch of money in right now. But you know, I mean, it's 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 complicated, and it's it's all of that too is a whole. <laughs> we should have a whole other podcast about that. For sure, <laughs> I, I'm all for that, um, guys uh, or ladies. <laughs> um, but women, yeah. <laughs> this has been really awesome. Thank you guys so much. Is there anything else that any of you wanted to add? Or I think. Overall, from this uh, solidarity exchange, it just highlights the importance to maintain solidarity and to be compassionate and to, like, you know, these are, like, they may be building bases and training for national security, but, you know, like... That's exactly how they sound, too. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, never mind. But, but, you know, that's not, like, what is really important, you know, is, like, maintaining you know, our families and having a peaceful life and being able to do what we love rather than, you know, having to go through so many emotions throughout the day, anger, frustration, you know, contemplation, you know, like trauma. So it's like, you know, this is why it's important what of what we're doing towards building, you know, a healthier and, you know, peaceful life. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, we need to stop this. It's hurting ourselves, you know, it's hurting yeah. others around us in the world. So it's like, it's important, oh. you know. Yeah. So, so start, like, start decolonization, um, like, within arm's reach, right? Just love yeah. everybody. 
and like just it, be it just shows you like at the end of the day what really matters it's like you know like not training and not trying to expect that there's gonna be more war like we don't have mm-hmm. to live that right. way <laughs> you know like cause being there like even though they're activists but it's also I could still see that the, the maintain, maintained peace that they have so it's like wow you know that's such a like you know that's such a beautiful way of life you know that you don't foc- like try to focus on like you know oh who are we trying to protect ourselves against or like training for this when we can like be sustaining ourselves and mm-hmm. yeah awesome. <laughs> not to sound like hippies but <laughs> <laughs> hippies are cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are cool um but yeah i think kind of just uh, building from what stacia said as far as like thinking about what national security means brings up another idea or thought from um the there was a huge press conference after the government meeting and we were talking about this idea of national security and who's actually included in that imaginary right mm-hmm. is it really more of a continental security for the united states and so then we're just seeing these islands used as buffers right mm-hmm. so thinking then again what what could how could we imagine genuine security where where do the women's voices uh, wh- where can the women's voices be included? What about the indigenous uh, communities? What about the children's voices, right? And so just trying to, again, maybe push your listeners to think about the reimagining of space and security in, in mm-hmm. those ways. And just to say thank you for this podcast. Right. You're doing a great mm-hmm. job. Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Manny. And just to build on even on what, a little bit on what Becca said, too, is like uh, we talked about, you know, what is security if, we're contaminating the water. Mm-hmm. What is security if we're destroying these forests, killing all these endangered species? What if, what is security if, you know, you, you, you can't even live in your own home because you're afraid a helicopter's gonna crash, or um, you can't even send your kids to daycare because parts of the helico- yeah, a yeah. helicopter might fall in it, or, you know, even what Stacia brought up, like, we were watching these elderly, um, these elders, these true elders, uh, these uh, activists, and we thought, wouldn't it be cool if they were doing something else? What would they rather be doing with the last years mm-hmm. of their life? You know, in their retirement, would they rather? But when, what? How would they spend it? And you think people are do, have been doing this for twenty years now, more and, than that. and more than that. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we hope we we do all this hoping that one day we don't have to do it anymore? Yeah. And so uh, all of those thoughts of just building on but on what both of these these fine women have said, um, Becca and Stacia, and I'm just so grateful to have had this time with them, and we're very grateful. We really want to also thank our friends just one more time. We can't thank them enough. Yeah. Um, Yukine, Yukuko, Mizuki, and Shoko, and everybody else who welcomed us, and um, we worked really hard. We brought a lot of whatever we could of our own resources, and we had a lot of support from our friends here and from the organizations we're involved in, Protegi mm-hmm. the Texan, Sabertinian, Independent Guahan, and the Guahan Coalition for Peace and Justice. But really, ultimately, we came back um, as close friends, mm-hmm. and we can want to continue working with our friends that we've made there. We love them very much. We mm-hmm. miss them, and we look forward to them coming back to to Guam, we look forward to going back there, and we want we're going to do whatever we can to nurture those relationships and to grow them, to grow them not just among, uh, be, to grow them even beyond the three of us, even beyond this room, to have as many people as possible going to Okinawa mm-hmm. and as many people as possible coming here, and even Puerto Rico and even Hawaii, and keep standing in solidarity with each other and supporting mm-hmm. each other's struggles uh, against oppression and against environmental degradation, against the you know, the violation of sacred sites and ancestral sites and the return of indigenous lands. Um, 
all of these things, that's security. That, that would be beautiful security. And um, hey, maybe even our own crypto. So <laughs> thanks <laughs> thanks so much, Manny. Uh, it's been so much fun. Yeah. yeah. Hey, thank you guys. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Unified Statement Against U.S. Militarization in Okinawa and Guam. University of Guam, October 24, 2017. To build foreign military bases in Okinawa and to use Japanese tax money to relocate Marines to Gohan on the grounds of reducing Okinawa's base burdens is in violation of the Japanese constitution. Since bases and live fire training ranges are built to prepare for future wars, it is without a doubt that residents of Okinawa and Gohan will be exposed to irrevocable harm. Today, we demand that the Japanese and U.S. governments listen to our unified voices as we stand in solidarity to stop the continued militarization of Okinawa and Guahan. Our islands are home to many precious species and rich histories, but our natural and historical resources are continuously destroyed by U.S. bases. We are exploited by conflicts created by superpowers. In Takai, Okinawa, our worst fear has been realized. In the early evening of October 11, a U.S. military helicopter crashed into Kai. Such an accident cannot be tolerated. From military aircraft crashes and crimes committed by U.S. military personnel, people of Okinawa and Guahan continue to be exposed to dangers not of their own design. And as such, our lives continue to be threatened. We cannot live safely. Many in our communities have been forcibly removed from our ancestral lands or have moved out of fear because of the construction of U.S. military bases. As history of crime, including rape and murder by the U.S. military, proliferates in our communities, we note that the military does not genuinely protect children, women, residents, or even its own personnel. Our human rights are ignored. Nobody should be able to take our human right to thrive with dignity. To protect our human rights and to save our rich natural resources for the future, we stand in solidarity and raise our voices together.